Let's just pray and then I'd like to get into the word of God. Father, I thank you for the wonderful uh, experience of watching baptisms and being part of them, reminding us of who we are in Christ, of how, Lord Jesus, you died for us, you bore our sins away on the cross, completely removed as far as the east is from the west. You've made us clean, we have a new life, and uh, we follow you now, eternal life, now and for eternity with you, Lord Jesus. We thank you, Father, for the wonderful, wonderful truths of the gospel. And now help us, Lord, as we look in your word, come by your Holy Spirit, open our eyes, open our hearts, and speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. Amen. 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 Well, we're continuing with our series in James, and this is... This one's called Privileges Brings Responsibilities, and it's from James 5, verses 1 to 6. Now, uh, we're going to read those verses. They're all going to come up on the screen anyway, because there's quite a few passages, mostly brief ones, that we'll be looking at, and I've, I've got them all on the PowerPoint, because otherwise we're flicking around a bit. So this is the key passage that we're basing everything on this morning. James 5, verse 1 to 6. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Glad you came this morning, aren't you? (laughs) Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look. The wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You've lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You've fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. There you go. James is very direct and straight. James, remember, is the half-brother of Jesus and was the leader of the first church, actually, the church in Jerusalem. But I think this little passage that you've just had in isolation, and we'll talk about that in a moment, because it's not always good to take the thing, a Bible verses out of context, and we'll, we'll, we'll address that in a minute. But just taking those verses in isolation, in some ways, I don't know about you, but they sound quite modern to our ears, relatively modern. That could come out of the Communist Manifesto, couldn't it? Or maybe the Socialist Worker paper. It could be some polemic against the ruling class from maybe the last one or two hundred years. Almost like a political tract. How odd, in a way, that it sounds so modern. You know, we're really familiar with things like this. We're familiar with concern for justice. We're familiar with a love and care, care for the poor and the disadvantaged. We're familiar with the concept of a fair fair wage for a fair day's work, fair wages, fair conditions for workers, human rights. The list goes on. And you know, all of those things that we take for granted and think are reasonable to address in different ways, some more stridently than others, those things are part of a Christian heritage, or perhaps precisely a Judeo-Christian heritage, a biblical worldview. Now, last week, about, about 10 days ago, I listened to a fascinating discussion on Premier Radio between Tom Holland who is a 
fairly young historian, quite a contemporary historian, quite uh, uh, well-known if you like history. He does some things on television. You'll see him on documentaries. He's written what are very accessible works on the Roman Empire, one called Rubicon, one called D- Dynasty. They're very readable historical works on the first century, or actually the Greco-Roman world. The discussion was between Tom Holland and Tom Wright, who is a theologian, and some of you will know who he is. And it was an hour-long thing called Unbelievable. It's a series you'll pick up on premiere. Now, Tom Holland is not a Christian, quite openly says that. He's an expert on the Greco-Roman world, as I said, and written a number of popular books. But he, he explained a trans, uh, something that's gone on in, with him over the last few years. He said, I've always assumed I was an inheritor of the Greco-Roman world, the Greek and Roman way of looking at the world. But as I've studied more and more and more the, fir- the antiquity, the centuries around Christ, he said, I've realized I, I'm not that at all. I'm not a child of the Greco-Roman world. I have inherited a Christian worldview, a Judeo-Christian worldview. He said, you will read in Julius Caesar, you'll read in Cicero. Yes, there are aspects that we recognize, but a a totally different approach to death, to pride, a very strong shame culture. That you know, he gives an example where Caesar had a million Gauls killed, executed. Far from being embarrassed, he's proud of it. He boasts about it. His followers wave placards with the numbers he's killed as being a hugely wonderful example of what a wonderful general he is. He said, "I realise all of this is foreign to me. Why is it foreign to me? Because actually, I have inherited a Christian way of thinking." And he said, I've read lots in the first century. Cicero's letters, they're massive. They all had a, because they're all clever men, they're all sort of like, make a few comments. You know, I'm sitting there ignorant. I've never read any Cicero's letters. Anyway, he goes on about it. And he said, I've read that Julius Caesar stuff. And he says, there's masses of it. But he then goes on to say this. He said, the most influential and revolutionary writings from the first century are none of those. They're Paul's letters and the Gospels. And he described it very vividly. He said, Paul's letters, which are just tiny compared to most of the other writings, he said, Paul's letters and the Gospels are like a depth charge that went off under the classical world. These are his words. And he said, the reverberations and shockwaves have gone through 2,000 years of history. And we don't even recognize how much we owe to that and how actually different we would be if it had not been for them. This is his view. Now, Tom Wright very subtly and ably said, yes, you have to realize you can't separate the fruit from the root. The biblical root is necessary for the fruit to stay and mature. And there was a little discussion about that. But, but to be honest, Tom Holland was just recognizing, I just realized how everything I value, everything I consider civilized, everything I consider the right way of behaving comes from Christian or Judeo-Christian roots. It doesn't really come from the Greco-Roman world. And that little discussion about democracy, which might be one of the few exceptions, and actually he addressed how he didn't feel it even that was. So when we look at James, and if we look at other things in the New Testament, and indeed the Old Testament, the Bible, we are looking at where so much that shapes our world comes from. So much. And actually... The verses in James that we're reading reflect a biblical ethics which you will find Old and New Testament of denunciation of those who exploit the poor. 
denunciation of greed and selfishness and covetousness, particularly with regard to wealth, obviously, and denunciation of pride about wealth and of thinking your entitlement, an attitude of entitlement and confidence in what you own and, and, and the money you have. All of that is part of a biblical worldview. You will find prophets like Amos who say things very similar to James if you look carefully in the Bible. And actually, this little excerpt we've read is not proto-socialism, although socialism itself, I would argue, is one of those shockwaves that has come out from a biblical view. It wouldn't have come from any other worldview. And it's one of the shockwaves that's reverberated through history. But actually, it's a long way from the completeness and truth of the biblical worldview. It's just one of the many reverberations, like human rights and many other things. And uh, 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 I won't go into the list. And, and so there's this, the, the, but we want to look at what's, where's the real explosion? Where's the heart of this earthquake? What's the core centre of this depth charge? We're not just interested in the echoes and reverberations. So we need to think biblically. Now, if you think about James, there is a context to what we've just read. The context is before and after, and we haven't time to read it, but fortunately, because we're doing a series, we are hearing about it. So just before this, there is a, a very uh, astute writing in James, and Jonathan spoke about it very well last week, where he challenges those who are living arrogant, self-centered lives with no regard for the will of God. They're assuming life's going to carry on. We can do this, we can do that, but there's no regard to what God wants us to do in God's will. Now that's just in the run-up. The old writings here we're looking at didn't have chapters and verses like we have them. That's the product of a printer in the Reformation age. It's, it's not really, that's just a way of finding things. It was a continuous piece of writing. So it, it came out of what we read last week and it goes on into what we'll see in the next week, couple of weeks, which is about faith and prayer and regard for God and prayer and care for one another. So there's a setting for this. Actually, the biggest setting in James, which we've already referred to earlier, I, funnily enough, was one who had the bit on favoritism in James 2, which was about a wrong attitude in the church where they were honouring those who were wealthy and uh, promoting, you know, favouring them and not being uh, even-handed in their attitude to the poor. And there's, uh, James is addressing that. So it's clearly an ongoing problem in the churches he's addressing. As I said, there's another big context which we haven't time to think about but we can refer to, the context of the Bible, of Old Testament prophets, and of God's own teaching, which you can read in the law of regard for the poor, of provision for the needy, of not exploiting people, of not uh, lending to them at huge, in in fact, no interest rate. They were to lend without taking interest, and uh, they were to care for people. Many, many noble things, if you read carefully your Old Testament. And greed and covetousness and stealing and defrauding are constantly, constantly condemned. But the one context I'd like to sort of land on for a few minutes is the context of Jesus himself. Because as we've said, remember James is the half-brother of Jesus. He was the half-brother of Jesus. And so they, uh, he, they have had the same mother, frankly, well, Mary. So James grew up hearing Jesus' teaching. Now what's quite interesting is that he wasn't a follower of Jesus, a disciple, while Jesus was uh, alive, not in the first phase before the, re- before the crucifixion. If you read carefully in the Gospels, the brothers and sisters of Jesus, who are half-brothers and sisters, were quite critical 
of him. At times you get little hints of it and James presumably was part of that. But undoubtedly he was caught up in all that was going on in the three or four years, particularly leading up to the crucifixion just afterwards. And he's caught up in hearing the teaching and and, and probably very disturbed and frustrated by it, not quite sure what to make of it all. But he was influenced because he ultimately was to become a believer and a follower of Jesus. And that happened after the resurrection, actually. And he met with the risen Christ, the risen Jesus Christ. And it it changed his whole perspective. And it probably was slightly similar to Paul's conversion. There was a complete turnaround. Wow, my brother is is all of what he said he is. He's the son of God. He's the saviour of the world. He's the redeemer. And James became a thoroughly committed follower of Jesus and a believer in him. And that's how he writes. So undoubtedly all he'd learned was influencing how he thought and wrote. Douglas Moo in his commentary says that James, the one who exercised the greatest influence on James' vocabulary and theology was Jesus Christ. It's clear, says Douglas Moo, that that that's where he got his main influence from, which is a good thing to, to, to have. Now Jesus himself actually says quite a lot about wealth, actually says quite a lot about money. And uh, we're not going to turn to all this at all, but in Luke chapter 6, you would see quite a robust denunciation of those who are wealthy and arrogant and exploiting others. It's almost like James himself. It's a, a prophetic denunciation. But there's many things you could pick up, but I want to pick up this morning for a few minutes one clear teaching of Jesus and apply it because it gives us understanding of what the root problem is that James is addressing. So in James, you just get this sort of outspoken criticism of possibly Christians, wealthy Christians who are exploiting others. But, but here we get in Jesus uh, a much more um, thorough understanding of what the root problem is. So let's look at it. We're gonna, it's going to go on the screen. This is Luke 12 and it's a well-known parable. In fact, Jonathan referred to it last week. I heard him do that and thought, oh, I was playing to you. And I thought, never mind, that's good. That's of God. I'm not, oh, I can't do that. I think, yes, I can do that. Obviously, God wants us to take notice of this parable. Neither of us are using it as our main sermon, but both of us referring to it. Probably me with a little more detail. So let's read it. Luke 12, 13 to 21. It's going on the screen. Someone in the crowd said to him, this is Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I will say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. And who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. Now, I would venture to say Jesus gives us a a more holistic approach to the problem than our excerpt from James. So I want to linger here for a few moments. Actually, the key verse is verse 15. 
Jesus said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. What a challenging statement. What wisdom, what penetration. Come on, let the Spirit of God speak to us. Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. First of all, watch out. Greed sneaks up on you. It always looks reasonable. The guy in this parable, it seems pretty reasonable. Just prepare for the future. Isn't it right to store up for yourself as much as you can? Isn't it right to be well prepared for the future and any eventuality? Watch out. It may look all right, but maybe it's greed. Maybe it's greed. Jesus talks about all kinds of greed. Greed comes in at least two major forms. One is possessiveness, i.e. we hold on to what we've got. We see it as part of ours and us to do with as we like and we don't want anybody else to get it and we're very defensive of it and we hold it with a firm grip. Possessiveness. The other aspect, one major aspect, would be covetousness which relates to what you don't have. And how curious that we all look at those who've got more than us or who are alongside us and actually have got something we haven't got. Quite often we don't notice that they may not have something we have got. We don't notice that. We notice what we haven't got. Possessiveness and covetousness. Let me give you what I found personally and continue to find quite challenging statistics. These are United Nations statistics and they are 20 years old. So I'm sure they've changed a bit, but only a bit. I find them challenging. The wealthiest 20% of the world's population consumes 80% of its income. Okay, that's a broad one. Let's get a bit more particular. Only 1% of the world's population own a motor car. How many of us in this room own a motor car? Put your hand up. I'm putting mine up. We'll talk about one motor car. Let's keep it modest. Put your hand down. You are among the top wealthiest 1% in the whole world. Only 5% of the world population go on a holiday, ever, on a holiday pay. Marion and I are due to go on holiday on Thursday, and we're going to Southern Ireland. Put your hand up if you're going this year on a holiday. You're not, don't, you don't need to think John's making you feel rotten. I'm going on holiday as well. Put your hand down. You are in the top, the wealthiest 5% in the whole world. If nothing else, that ought to make you thankful, doesn't it? Make you thankful. I don't want to make you weirdly condemned, but I want to make you sober. Watch, Jesus said, watch out. Because we can always look at what we haven't got. We can always look at what we wish we had. We can always, but actually, we are incredibly blessed to live where we are in the time of life. I don't care what your background is. I'm not being rude. Uh, you know, don't let's think, well, yeah, but you don't know what I've worked hard. No, 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 that's not the way to think. That's what the man did in the parable. Let's think about where we are. Now, actually, there are many other, that's just two out of a whole list, and, I, and that's not my job this morning. But 
I think we need to understand that there's always a problem and always a challenge which we have to resist that we're not just getting greedy and getting a wrong perspective on what we own. And then Jesus says at the end of it, a person's life doesn't consist, that's my slight change, a person's life does not consist in the abundance of their possessions. Oh my word, how we need to hear that today. You see, we live in a culture that is rooted in materialism. Let's take a moment to think about this. Materialism. The word's just up there quickly. What is materialism? Well, it's not a new phenomena because actually the guy in this parable is a materialist. But let's just examine it for a moment. Materialism, I would say, with quite a degree of confidence, and you may well agree with me by the end of the next few minutes, I would say materialism is the unofficial religion of 21st century Britain. Materialism is the unofficial religion of 21st century Britain. It has got a belief system, materialism. This is it, taken from a dictionary. Materialism is a belief that physical matter is the only or fundamental reality. Just hear that again. It's not on the screen. Materialism officially has a belief. It is a belief that physical matter is the only or fundamental reality. Now, that's the philosophical thing, but in practice, that is how most people live. And actually, I would argue it is officially, almost, the view of our culture and our nation. The establishment, in every angle, of 21st century Britain would say that physical matter is the only or fundamental reality. That would be behind our education system. It would be behind our political system. It would be behind the whole way our media treat everything. Now, that is materialism as a philosophy. But in practice, it works out like this. It means you live on a day-to-day basis as though there was no God, no spiritual life, Nothing that mattered apart from everything concrete and material that you own or have. That is the thing that really matters. Your now experience, your now possessions, everything you have, and that is what you focus on. And sadly, I have to say, including myself, there is a tendency for us all to live as materialists, even if we said we weren't materialists, isn't there? But actually, in our culture, it's not only accepted, it is promoted. The guy in this parable would be considered a very sensible, wise man in modern Britain. Why on earth wouldn't you build bigger barns? Why on earth wouldn't you make sure you've got plenty for the future? Why on earth wouldn't you, if you've got a big stack of cash, sit back and say, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow? You know, let's just enjoy this. This is for my pleasure. This is for my enjoyment. I need to now spend this on myself and my family because that's what I deserve. That's what it's for. Ooh, that's a bit near to home, isn't it? <laughs> but that's what this guy does. And that is actually the fruit of materialism, that you live as though this life is what it's all about and as though what you owned was totally yours and was the most important thing in your life. And you could add that it gave your life meaning and value, that your life to some extent consists of the abundance of your possessions. That would be considered realistic, practical, sensible in our day and age. But actually it's dangerous Because materialism invariably leads 
to an elevation of things and a depreciation of people, which is what's happening in James 5, verse 1 to 6. And it's what's happening with the guy here in the parable. But actually, it's what happens all around us. There's a danger that things are elevated at the depreciation of people and relationships. It can also lead to blatant forms of immorality where human dignity and human life can even become secondary to things and to wealth. It is in many ways a dangerous philosophy because it affects how you view all sorts of things about morals and living and uh, life itself and how you ultimately in its worst excesses exploit other people or disregard them. It inevitably produces a hyper-individualism where my self-interest is, is the main thing. That's what matters. Where expediency and profitability, profitability are the key values. A pragmatic profitability becomes quite uh, a major thing in a materialistic culture. We live in a very materialistic culture. This guy in this parable is a materialist. Look what God says to our materialist. You fool. God thinks materialists are fools. And they are fools. Materialism is foolish because it is wrong. It is based on a false premise. There is a God. You have a soul. And there is a life after death and there is an accountability to the living God. And to live like that is to build your life. To live as that wasn't true is to build everything on a lie. And our culture and its philosophy is built on lies. And I use the word totally choosing deliberately to use it because it's the truth. What I'm saying is the truth. They're built on a lie. There is a God. We are accountable we do have souls. Jesus said, what is it, what would it, Jesus said, what would you gain? What good is it to gain the whole world and forfeit your soul? Jesus said, what good is it to gain the whole world and forfeit your soul? That is a good question. And it's asked in another place from this parable, but it obviously ties in with it. Then we have to learn quite quickly now how do we alter our attitudes so we don't just absorb and soak in the materialism around us and don't just continue to live as though there was no God and in the foolishness, the foolishness of materialism. By the way, I would say materialism is foolish. This, I mustn't digress too much for another reason. It doesn't bring the happiness it promises. Do you ever read celebrity gossip columns? Do you listen to what's going on in the world amongst the movers and shakers and the celebrities and the people with lots of money? It's, it's often very miserable. There's broken relationships, rehab, drug taking, suicides. And I know they're not all doing that, but when you just drive... I mean, I know of people who, because there were some in Hastings, who became millionaires through the lottery and wish they hadn't ever won it some years down the line, because all the misery it brought them. It's absolutely stupid from a practical point of view, apart from the foolishness. Materialism is foolish because of the lies it's built on. There is a God, and we are accountable to him. So what's the antidote? What's the, what's the answer? 
Well, it's in that parable. It's in the phrase, rich towards God. We need to be rich towards God. Now, this is where we've got to drill down for a few moments towards the end. So how do we do that? How do we end up being rich towards God instead of just trusting in the abundance of things and getting more and more things for ourselves? Well, there's two aspects I would like to quickly highlight. First of all, we need to get right with God. That's a priority. I need to understand that the most important thing in my life is not what money I've got, what future I've got, what pension I've got, what job I've got, or not got, actually. The most important thing in my life is, do I know God as my Lord and Saviour and as my Heavenly Father? That is absolutely more important than any other problem anyone in this room has got at this moment. Any problem, including life-threatening health problems. It's more important that you know God. Absolutely paramount that you know, then whatever else happens, you're on the right foundation. Now, you can know him. You can know God as your heavenly father. There are some beautiful, beautiful pictures in Luke 15. If I haven't got time to do all this, so if you're interested and want to, please read Luke 15 this week. Read it and look at it as three pictures of God's love for you, God's care for you. The good shepherd, the woman looking for the coin, and the prodigal son. And the prodigal son is a materialist. He is another materialist. He goes to his father and he says, Father, give me all that's coming to me when you die. I can't be bothered waiting until you die. Give it to me now. So he, he wants the things he's due. So he has his, the father graciously gives him his share of the estate. And he goes and he spends it all on himself. He goes and spends it all on himself. And then eventually he comes to himself, the Bible says. He realises what a fool he's been. He's been a fool. He's now in a pigsty feeding pigs. And he's eating some of the pig food. And he realises what a fool I've been. And so he decides, I'll go back to my father and I'll say, Father, I've sinned against you. I've sinned against heaven. I'm not worthy to be a son. I forget that. But can you just employ me so that I can live and at least have enough to eat? So I'll go and ask my dad, will he employ me as a slave servant, servant in, in his estate? And he goes back towards his father. And as he gets near, not before he gets there, as he gets near, the father runs to him. He's been watching for him. The father runs, which is very undignified for an older man in the first century Middle East. He runs and he embraces the smelly, filthy son before he's ever clothed in any nice clothes. While he's still covered in pig muck, he embraces him. And he brings him into the house. He cleans him off. He gives him a new robe. He gives him sandals on his feet, a ring on his finger, which meant he reinstated him as a son. He reinstated him as a son. And he rejoiced and had a celebration party. My son was dead. He's alive. Now, here's the amazing, moving thing. That is God's picture of himself. That's God telling us what he feels. That's the power in it. It's a nice story, but then you realise why it's told. God says, this is what I'm like, even with a materialist. With people like us, like me, just live for ourselves. Don't Give us, oh, we'll have, all that. have our life and a good life. Yes, I'm born in England, thank goodness for that. Yeah, 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 I'm, I'm, yeah, yeah I deserve it all anyway. I'm going to have as much as I can. And yes, but you come to your sense and think, this is a pigsty. This doesn't work. Oh God, I'm sorry. 
And as soon as you turn back to him, he comes with arms open wide. Not to wait till you're tidied up, not to wait till you're clean and tidy. He draws you in, in your filth, and he cleans you up. He removes the filthy clothes. He puts a good new fresh robe of righteousness on you. He makes you a son and an heir. You become a joint heir with Christ. You become a son of God in Jesus. This is the gospel. It is magnificent. It's how you get right with God. That's where you start being rich towards God. It's not, don't start thinking, oh, I've got to give a bit more. Can I give a few bit more money this Christmas? Oh, yeah, I'll be a good boy. I'll give to the refugees. No, no, that won't get, no, get right with him first. Then live right. We'll talk about that in the last few minutes. But get right with him first. You're going to be rich towards God. You can be. You can come right back as the prodigal son did. And God's told us, this is how it is. If you will repent and turn back to me. Well, then we need to live right with God. Yes, that's true. What does that mean? Well, it live, means as a Christian, you live trusting God for your material needs. You realize it isn't all yours and you're entitled to it. You're, it's, but by the grace of God, I've got what I have. I'm a steward of it. I'm a steward of it. I'm to use it to honor him and to serve other people. Now, you want, I want you to know the Bible has a very interesting, what I would call, balanced view of, of, of possessions. really does. It doesn't say you've just got to get rid of them all. It, it doesn't say money itself is evil. It's the love of money. I just wanted to get the quote right. The love of money that's the root of evil. Money and possessions are not themselves wrong. It's what our heart that's wrong. And, and actually, the Bible doesn't say, well, it's holy to be poor and have no money. That a po- take a vow of poverty to prove you're holy. That isn't the thing. In fact, you can be very poor and still have a greed problem because you're full of covetousness. So it's, it's nothing about that. It's nothing about that. It's, it's about how you trust God and how you see whatever you have as something you can steward for him. That you're prepared to put... Put, put your money in. It's not just money, actually. Yourself, your time, your energy. Your, you, you'll put them at God's disposal. You live for him. And you will enjoy what he gives you, but you'll also be a- allowing him to help you to use it for others. Actually, the Bible as ever, says it better than I feel I can. So this is my last bit, the last quote. It's from 1 Timothy 6. <clears throat> and it's Paul addressing Again, rich, quest, rich Christians, but with a little more um, moderation, perhaps, and common sense. I'm not common sense. Moderation and understanding, perhaps, than we got from the James passage. So let's read it. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. True point. Brexit, and it could all go down the tube. I mean, I'm, I wish I'd got my euros last week. We're going to Ireland on Thursday. I need euros. I waited till Friday. It's about 10 10 whatever's less because of the silly carning bloke. There you are. (laughs) So uncertain. And I mustn't trust in it. Okay. Which is so uncertain. But put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Hey, he didn't say you've got to throw it all away. He said you can enjoy it. But don't treat it as the be-all and end-all and think it's all yours. You can enjoy it. But command them also to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous, willing to share. 
In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Now, the Bible interprets itself. There's a balance to Scripture. So you come from James's sort of little bit of, sort of, whoa, you know, you rich, blah, blah, blah. And then here in Paul, you get a slightly more explained thing. And this is where we can linger and learn, land it. Because what the Bible is telling us is if we are rich in this present world, and as we've already seen, that probably applies on a world scale, it applies to pretty well everyone in the room, then don't put your hope in wealth. Put your hope in God. Be rich towards God. Enjoy what he gives you, but also use it to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous, willing to share, and see it as a way of storing up, if you like, riches for the age to come. Because it is a fact, it is true, as the parable made clear, that when you do die, you don't take it with you. Now, all through the millennia, rich people have tried to do things to avoid that. Right from the pharaohs, with their pyramids and all their wealth around their sarcophagus or whatever it is, through to our own sort of Anglo-Saxon kings buried in their boats with their, all their wealth around. They're all trying to say, I'm taking all this to the afterlife. No, you're not. You're not. It's here, rotting in the ground. We found it 2,000 years later. You're not taking it to the afterlife. You go naked to the afterlife. Naked you come, naked you go. That is life for everyone. Everyone. Despite all the efforts of rich men and women down through the ages, we all leave this world as poor as one another. There is an equality to death. And when we stand before God, none of this wealth counts one bit. We all, as it were, are naked before him. You can't take it with you. But one Christian writer put it rather sort of well, Randy Oldcorn. He said, you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead of you. What did he mean? You can turn it into eternal value. If you use what you have for God, if you use it to serve the Lord, as Paul says here, in this way you will lay up a treasure for a firm foundation for the coming age. If you're generous, willing to share, if, it, if you, you and your resources are available for God's use, in a way, you build up a treasure in heaven. In Randy Alcorn's words, you send it on ahead of you. Not as concrete material wealth, but you turn it into spiritual wealth. If you share your car with someone and bring them to the Alpha meeting in your car and they get saved, a little bit of eternity has come out of your car. If you've got a home, a little house, a room, and you've got a, a couple of seats and chairs and a kettle and make a cup of tea, and you have people round and you're friendly, you might not have very much, and you, you use it for Jesus, and you, you, you share about Jesus and maybe pray for them, and they get blessed, maybe saved, maybe healed in your front room with your cup of tea, your crack mug, your little sofa, you've put a bit of eternity into your sofa and your room. Honestly, you have. If you've taken a little bit of your money and invested it in the kingdom of God and people are saved and blessed and helped, you've put a bit of eternity into it. You've turned it into eternal treasure. You've sent it on ahead of you, to use Randy Alcorn's phrase. 
Can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. It's true. And it's the antidote to materialism. It's not you can't enjoy what you've got, but you don't hold it with a clenched hand. You hold it in an open hand. So God can put more in or he can take some out. Because you hold it in an open palm, not a clenched fist. Amen? Let's stop there. Let's stand together. Let's just stand together. We'll have the musicians up, please. We're going to sing a song to finish up with, but I just want to pray for us all before we do that. So I'm just going to pray for God's grace on us all to be free from materialism, which is based on nonsense anyway, and to be men and women who are rich towards God. If you want to know how to start that journey with God this morning, come and speak to one of us afterwards. There'll be a few here for prayer. There'll be an open opportunity for prayer over on my left. Please take advantage of that for prayer, for sickness, all sorts of things. But you could come and talk there at the Connect desk and just say, I'd like to know how to become a Christian. Please don't miss the opportunity. You could talk to me or Steve as well, whichever you find easier. But I just want to pray for all of us before we sing. Let's just pray. Father, I thank you that my life and our lives do not consist in the abundance of our possessions. Thank you that we are not the sum total of what we own or what we've got. Thank you we're far more. You've given us a soul, a spirit. You've put eternity in our hearts. Lord, we're going to be with you forever. or We're going to go on beyond the grave. We want to be with you forever. And I thank you, Lord, that you've given us your son, Jesus Christ, as our saviour, as our Lord. You gave him. He died for us. He rose again. That we might know you as our heavenly father. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Lord, I pray that you would break every materialistic spirit in our hearts or in our lives this morning. Break it, Lord. Pray in Jesus' name, we rebuke the spirit of materialism. We rebuke it. We, we say it's not true. It's not right. We don't agree with the strongholds of modern Britain. We are much more than just physical chemicals. We're more than just the things we own and the things around us. We believe in your truth, Father. We thank you. We're wonderfully and fearfully made. We thank you it's appointed for each of us to die once and after that to meet you in judgment. We believe these truths, Lord. Lord, we ask you to help us to live rich towards you. Help us to be able to be easy about owning things. Easy when sometimes their uncertainty means we lose them. Help us to be at ease because you're our provider. All comes from you anyway. Help us to be good stewards of what you've given us, I pray. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.